Welcome to the Shepherd's Crook Podcast. The Shepherd's Crook exists to provide care, counsel, and resources for pastors. You can get more information at theshepherdscrook.co. My name is Jared Sparks, and I'm a pastor. Come alongside other pastors, reminding them of the chief pastor. All right, welcome to the Shepherd's Crook Podcast. I'm excited today to have on the show Dr. Paul Maxwell. Paul, how you doing today, man? Doing great. Thanks so much for having me on. Absolutely. Why don't we pray? And then I've got a, well, several questions I've got for you, and uh, I'm looking forward to what you've got to say. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. I just ask that you would lead this discussion, and I thank you for Paul and all that you're doing in, in and through him and the encouragement that you have brought to me through him. And uh, I'm just thankful for this time. Lead this conversation. I trust you will. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. Dr. Maxwell, would you tell us, for those who don't know who you are or may not be familiar with your work, would you just tell us a little bit about yourself, your wife, um, where you guys live, and what it is that you do? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on, man. This is absolutely fantastic. Um, yeah. I, uh, so I, I grew up in New York. Uh, I uh, became a Christian kind of later in my teen years through a ministry called Youth for Christ. And uh, then I, uh, uh, one of the elders at my church was a graduate of Moody Bible Institute, and he he could he knew all he could answer all of my theological questions, and I just became really fascinated with the with these ideas. You know, I I don't know why some some people uh, have kind of the gift of faith, you know, where where they're just really not that bothered by uh, the theological questions, but I was bothered by them, not not in a negative way, but it, it really propelled me into asking deeper and deeper questions, and I, and and eventually got to the point where I just just enjoyed the journey of just figuring it out, hmm. uh, asking philosophical questions, looking into scripture. And so it just became very clear that, it, that, um, it, that, so my elder was a Moody grad and he was like, you need to go to Moody. So I, at that point, my whole life, I had been gearing up to go to West Point military Academy, um, civil air patrol, all that stuff. And, and then God just put it in my heart to go and study the Bible. I wasn't looking to go into ministry. I didn't feel okay. called to ministry. I was just curious. And, um, so I went to Moody and there I, you know, for the first time you discover, wow, you can learn Greek, you can learn Hebrew. Moody's biblical languages department is, is world-class. Uh, it's, I think it's best in class for undergraduate institutions, but they, and so I just dove deep into the languages and it was there that I encountered just kind of through some personal reading Cornelius Van Til, mm -hmm. uh, and just really appreciated his, uh, apologetic methodology. I kind of had a lot of anxiety about defending my faith and, and Van Til was able to give me some tools and some ways of thinking to kind of alleviate that anxiety. So naturally mm -hmm. uh, I had this, I had this, um, like, desire to go deeper into the languages, but I also really wanted to go deeper with Reformed theology. So I met with, uh, at the time he was at Wheaton College, uh, I met with uh, G.K. Beale, and I was talking to him and saying, you know, this is, uh, I, I, I want to go deeper into Greek and Hebrew, and I feel like mm -hmm. I kind of have to choose between biblical studies and theology. As you know, those disciplines, you know, a lot of people don't know, biblical studies and theology are so far removed from one another. Hmm. Um, and uh, not not that the top not that the subject matter is far from right. far from one another, but that the disciplines themselves, because they narrow down into these levels of expertise. You know, if you talk to the average Old Testament scholar and the average systematic theologian, 
they they don't share much of the same knowledge base. And so so Beale said, hey, you know what? Actually, I'm moving to Westminster and uh, I'm going to teach there, you know, and I'm going to teach uh, biblical studies and Acts and Paul and all that kind of stuff. So I was like, this is just uh, amazing. And so I ended up going to Westminster, didn't even know what I was getting into, had such a fantastic experience, ended up uh, working as a research assistant for Scott Oliphant, uh, okay. one of the finest theologians of our age, I think. And, um, and, and Lane Tipton and just all the amazing faculty there and ended up getting to study uh, intertestamental theology and use of the New Testament or Old Testament in the New and all that fun stuff with Dr. Beal. And then also at that time, I was working as a marketing manager and a content strategist at CCEF, Christian Counseling and Education Foundation, nice. with David Pallison and Ed Welch and those guys. And that was just a ton of fun. And they kind of put this bug in my ear about uh, psychology and theology and the work that really needs to be done, the, the good integrative work that we need to do, not just with one issue, another issue, but uh, with at the methodological level, what is the relationship between these disciplines? How can yeah. we use that relationship to serve the church? So I was looking for a PhD advisor who could really accommodate that interdisciplinary project. Uh, Kevin Van Hooser became the, the obvious forerunner for that uh, at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School because he does so much interdisciplinary work. He um, is very familiar with the field of psychology and integrative work. Uh, because the relationship between those two topics is deeply hermeneutical, he's just a master of that mm. specific domain. So uh, the Lord provided a scholarship for me to work with him, and that was just the beginning of uh, the deepest four years of research and writing of my life. And so, right. yeah, and so I thought that whole time, and while I was doing my PhD, I, I taught philosophy at Moody Bible Institute at my alma mater. That whole time, I thought I was going to do like, uh, I thought I was going to be a professor, you know, I thought I was going to yep. be a full-time professor. That's what I wanted to do. Um, but it, that opportunity wasn't made available. I graduated with seven other PhDs in theology and new Testament and old Testament. And none of us ended up teaching, uh, <laughs> just because the job market is horrendous and, um, uh, that's fine, you know? Uh, and so God ended up uh, providing another opportunity. And now I am a marketing a strategist at a company called Tithely, and we build digital software solutions for churches in the realm of giving, church management, text to give, church websites, all that kind of stuff. And it's just a ton of fun to be able to serve churches, see them grow, see them grow their giving, grow their resources. Uh, just, uh, it's really cool to be able to serve churches to meet their needs uh, by just giving them the digital tools to be a little bit more sophisticated in their fundraising and their marketing and all that kind of stuff. So awesome. I just absolutely love it. And that's what I'm doing now. We're my wife, Molly and I, we live in Chicago, uh, which we love. And we're members of Emmanuel Anglican church, uh, which is two blocks from us, which is fantastic. Nice. We've never lived right next to our church. And so it's just, uh, it's just great. We love it. So that's, that's fantastic. And you're one of the few, uh, sorry to be a Chicago hater here, but you're one of the That's few right. Chicago defender and apologists that I know. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I, I don't really go south of <laughs> Michigan, you know, of uh, the, the Magnificent Mile. But yeah, so I live in I live in like the uptown neighborhood, if you're familiar okay. with the yeah, Chicago area. So it's like three or four miles north of like... Uh, you know, the magnificent mile. Yeah. And, uh, I love Chicago. Man, that's it's just cool. fantastic. Yeah. So, My wife and I, so Jordan, we, we went up, I think like three or four years ago, we thought, you know, we're going to go play in Chicago a little bit. And we love St. Louis cause we're just like an hour and a half Southeast of St. Louis or hour and 45 minutes. And in St. Louis, there is just free things to do everywhere. And I like this dollar, this dollar amount is forever etched in my mind. I paid $76 in parking 
over two days in Chicago. And I thought, oh, <laughs> you're like man. the cheapest people in the world. So I thought, you know what? This, forget it. I'm not going back yeah. to Chicago. I apologize on behalf of Chicago. <laughs> no, it's bad. Parking is, yeah, one of the bad things for sure. Okay. Well, man, you've, yeah. got, uh, you've got a unique story for sure. Now, tell, for, let's do this on the front end. Where can people find, if they want to hear more from you, want to hear about your podcast or are there some of the books that you've written? Go ahead and on the front end, tell people where they can go to find more of your stuff. Yeah. So I, I would say the number one place is just go to my podcast and whatever your podcast is and just search Paul Maxwell. Uh, Paul Maxwell today is the name of my podcast. And uh, just check it out. If you want to connect with me on Twitter, I'm Paul C. Maxwell on Twitter. Feel free to connect with me on Facebook. And then really my website has all this information, which is just paulmaxwell.co. So paulmaxwell.co. Awesome. All right. Yeah. So you talk a lot about manhood and in your most recent podcast release you've got three new or four now on your on your podcast i listened i think it was to the the first one and the third one and you had some interesting observations about um the twitterverse and social media uh, engagement of the right and the left and how manhood intersects or comes into play with how we face uh, the left or the right and in our responses and all of that. And you talked about how manhood is about building, not necessarily responding. You had a really interesting idea of, you quoted Robert Murray Mache and said that what a man is on his knees before God, that he is and nothing more. And I wanted to hear you expand that a little bit because I've heard that quote before. Our elders at our elder meeting talked about that yesterday morning, actually. And I asked them a question. What is that? What does that mean? And I want to ask you, what does that quote mean from Robert Murray McShay? And then how, what does that mean to be a builder as a man? Right. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. And so let me kind of start at the end, which is to say, um, what does it mean when you, your conception of yourself or your personal identity uh, is, is not that? It is not that whatever it is for you to be on your knees before God, uh, and then you start adding in all of these things. Well, uh, we might not say these things. And in, in fact, we would probably say that we don't believe these things, but our actions kind of betray uh, 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 sort of nascently, like what, what we think uh, or little strategies that we have to kind of accumulate that satisfaction of, uh, of recognition. And, uh, and so that's, that's, kind of the, that's kind of the swelling of the ego Mm-hmm. Uh, that and, and the problem with the ego is that it's all about optics. And so that is what the psychological engineers at social media companies do is they recognize the ego thrives with optical quantifications like likes and shares and accolades and all of those kinds of things. And so the more of those we can get to people, even if the nature of those quantifications like a or retweet, even if the nature of those things depreciates, we're going to keep doing that more and more and more because the more of those notifications they get, the, the, the more dependent their ego is going to be on those notifications and the more mm. desperate they're going to be to maintain the status of their ego. So that's the opposite of what it means to be merely who you are before God. Mm. Um, what it means to be merely who you are before God, really, um, and obviously it's a deeply Christian idea. It's older than Stoicism, much older than Stoicism, but the Stoics really, I think, crystallized this concept well. Um, a- 
And it's this notion that in Ryan Holiday's recent book, Stillness is the Key. That's a fantastic book, which I, which okay. I commend to everybody. And of course, it's secular, right? So it's not going to be arguing you know, from a biblical perspective. But the whole premise is, is basically that uh, if you... It's, stoicism is about quelling the passions. So when we are triggered or act out or get angry or jump on our phones or jump on social media or, or we're really bothered by something, we have to be able to identify that as an intrusive thought. Hmm. And uh, uh, really it comes down to being able to distinguish between myself and the thoughts that go through my head. Because there's, I think people just typically operate with the notion that the things that I think, well, those are my thoughts. But that's actually not true. And it might sound absurd to say it's not true, but it's quite true because the things that you think are just things that you think. Your thoughts are expressive of your values. They're expressive of things that you determine to be true. And so um, what happens is when, when you're plugged into a system that keeps that ego big and that keeps you dependent on all of those optics to keep that ego big because there's a high that comes with it. Um, uh, what happens there is that you actually give up control. You give up that determinative control that you have over yourself to distinguish between yourself and the, the things you think that come into your head. You give that up over to someone else. Hmm. You give that up over to someone else who is trolling you or, or maybe they themselves, and this is really is the nature of social media, they themselves have their own ego. And it's my ego versus your ego. And ego, the ego is not a bad thing but it can get hijacked because the ego, the, the ego actually serves a purpose. And I don't mean the ego in the Freudian sense, the meaning the I, but the ego really as a superficial abstraction of myself or really like a, the, the ego is like, like a, it's an avatar of myself, you know? And the, 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 the good role of the ego is that the ego is supposed to take the blow for me. We're actually, the, so we actually end up, what we do is we say, no, 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 I'm gonna protect my ego. And then we take the hit for mm. our ego. We're protecting that ego. We're protecting the avatar and we're sacrificing oh. ourselves to protect the avatar, the projection of ourselves socially and publicly out there. Mm. When in reality, the purpose of the ego is supposed to take the hit for us, mm. right? And so, so social media flips all that. Political discourse mediated through social media exacerbates how much it flips all of that. And, uh, and to be centered in God is, is, comes back to Ryan Holiday's principle of the stillness being the key. Hmm. Centeredness. If somebody says something to me, even something, not just that they're politically disagreeing with me, but something truly insulting, I'm not going to give them power over me. Yeah. <laughs> Who are they? You know, like right. I only, I will give people time if they as often as I can to uh, talk face to face or to have a conversation over the phone because you can resolve something in five minutes over the phone that would take days or right. probably will never get resolved on social media. So it's just really uh, an impoverishment of the medium and more than an like the medium of course, there's two, two ways in which social media does a disservice to our, our spiritual health as men. Uh, the first is that it's just superficial, right? It doesn't actually mm -hmm. accommodate deep interaction. It just simply doesn't. And then the other side of it is that it, it actually gets the flywheel spinning in our own hearts that's really hard to stop once it gets momentum, which is that we are invested and we actually kind of like, like, kind of like Bitcoin, right? Or like a currency, like we give value to mm -hmm. this thing. And the more people that give value to it, the more value it 
the, the, the more shares there are to be had, the more, uh, you know, the, 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 the more people value it, the more valuable it is to us. And the more we buy into the fallacy that, well, we just have to keep on going. I couldn't, right. I couldn't, I could never like what delete my Twitter, delete my Facebook or something like that. And somebody who's very, uh, inspiring to me in this regard is, a. He's a, uh, I think, well, oh no, he's a computer scientist, I think, at the University of Virginia named Cal Newport. Great book okay. called uh, Deep Work. And also recently came out with the book called Digital Minimalism. And he doesn't have a Twitter, doesn't have a Facebook, doesn't have any of that stuff. Uh, and and his book, you know, sold like gangbusters. And he, he's, mm. he, his whole kind of purpose in his life as he, as he mentors students and as he writes these books is to be a test case of how you can have a thriving, successful, healthy social life and still succeed even as a public figure without any of these media, without any of yeah. these social media. And uh, it really is a fallacy that we need to buy into social media to do anything for us. But more than that, it, when we do buy into it, it, it really is corrosive to our psychology and our spirituality. It, it, can, it can become so really easily. And even if there are some net benefits that we get from it, oh, I like to connect with people. Oh, like I'll see somebody post a cool quote. Oh, I'm a member of this Facebook group, so maybe I'll learn something kind of cool. We, we latch onto those, but we neglect, oh man, I, you know, I lost an hour today just scrolling through my phone. Yeah time is really precious, <laughs> you know, like at the mm -hmm. end of my life, I'm going to be looking back thinking, what in the world was I doing? Right. Uh, looking at my phone all the time. And I don't say this as somebody like Cal Newport, I work in technology. So like, uh, uh, in, in, in a sense, I'm, I mean, what we do is we try to help churches leverage technology for the spiritual health of the church. But, mm -hmm. uh, in our atmosphere right now, it's really weird because, um, Everything is changing. The left, maybe a year and a half ago, was nuts, nuts. <laughs> and then with all the intersectionality stuff and blah, blah, mm -hmm. blah. Now, the right is kind of nuts. Um, you know, uh, like there was the alt-right in 2016 and 2017, and we all kind of knew like, yeah, they're racist. Like, you know, obviously we reject that. But now the right is getting to the point where you've got really a clash of two kinds of conservatism. And you've got people who are, so I, I am voting for Trump in 2020 for sure. And I think I'm the, I'm, I'm the only person that I know for sure is, is doing that. Most of the people I know aren't. And uh, there are kind of two kinds of Trump supporters. One is the Christian who sees the net value, the net positive of having somebody who's going to put the justices that are going to, you know, right. uh, uh, facilitate the maybe ho hopefully people with, with Christian values into important positions of power. But then the other side are these cultural conservatives that are arguing that it's okay to look at porn. They're socially liberal. They're fat. They're, they're, they're romanticized this idea of libertarianism and they've never mm -hmm. read the Federalist Papers or maybe they have read the Federalist Papers. But, but, but just, just, this, just this version of conservatism that's just pushing uh, the, again, it's, it's a connection to the ego and, 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 um, Trump, and I don't really say this as a criticism. This is more of just a cultural phenomenon. He's really good at, at bringing that out in people. Right. Um, or maybe it's not that he's really good at it. He's, or I think he is good at it, but, but maybe it's just that people, I think people want to have it drawn out of them. I think people yeah. want to have their, the, their worst selves, made public and mm -hmm. they want it that they want that to be validated um so in our moment you know the right is kind of especially maybe in like this big towel and red pill kind of movements 
guys, men are starting to see themselves as victims. You know, they're victims of feminism or they're, they're all butthurt about, you know, how, how could these, uh, you know, how, how could these feminists or egalitarians uh, reject, you know, patriarchy or, or hypergamy or all these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And in my mind, it comes back to that notion of stillness. Okay. Um, I don't care what anybody else believes. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, you know, not, not a, I don't mean that objectively in terms of like, I don't care what anybody believes, but, Got it. Yeah. but, but I don't care what some random person believes. Mm -hmm. And I certainly don't care what some public figure believes, uh, yeah. especially if I have no relationship to them. So in my philosophy, that stillness, that being on your knees before God, that's, that's the, that's the purest version of proximity with yourself you ever have. And then in concentric circles out from that, you have people that you're in physical relationship with, then people that you used to be in physical relationship with, and then people that you don't have a physical relationship. And by physical, I don't mean like a physical relationship, but I mean person to person, face to face, yeah. right? Uh, uh, so, people that, so people that you know in person, people that you used to know in person, but you keep in contact digitally and people that you only know digitally. And the further out in that concentric circle you get, the more problematic those relationships become. And, how, and so we might say, well, only 20% of my relationships are purely digital. It's like, well, how much time do you spend in that digital medium? And then how many of those relationships when you're on that digital medium are purely digital, right? How many of those interactions are purely digital? And the answer is going to be probably over 80%, right? And, and so then that should prompt us to question really the healthfulness of these media and what they're doing to us and that we yeah. should use them critically. We need to really be critical about how it's affecting our hearts and how it's affecting us as men. And if it's, if it's corroding us to the point where, we're not able to access that stillness before God to see him as he truly is. And so that we can see ourselves as we truly are. I think it's dangerous. Yep. And I'm, I'm only talking about this because I see it happening with myself. I'm not like some guy on his high horse over here. I'm just trying to work right. it out for myself, you know? Well, I think every, you know, everyone knows that in 20 years we'll be able to look back and evaluate some of the consequences of what was going on 20 years before. And I think everybody has a, a general understanding that we're in a unique time with social media over the last 10, 15 years, and even over the last five years, but we don't yet know how it is affecting us. And we know we, we are going to know how it's affecting us. But I think for pastors in particular, and you're not a pastor, but you are a man and pastors are men. Um, there are so many things that lead us away from what's right in front of us. What's, what's my family, my life with God what I'm doing today with my children who have names and who live in my home with my wife who has a name and lives in my home, who I'm one flesh with. And I loved you, you talking about that in your episode, because I think it's applicable for all men. I've got a, I've got a buddy of mine, young guy, by the time he was 20 years old, he was married and he wasn't a typical, typical 20 year old. He wasn't a, uh, he wasn't goofing off. He, he had a job. Um, started working right out of school. He knew how to uh, uh, hunt and he knew how to take care of a family and work hard. He knew how to balance a budget and he knew that God was calling him into ministry and he just started plugging away. He's at a PCA church now in, in uh, Evansville and I've respected him because he is, he is who he is. He, he's, he doesn't get swayed, doesn't get pulled. And I think for so many men, pastors in particular, getting to that point with, you know, with McShay where the internet is not going to dominate my life. You know, the, 
what people think of me or say of me or do not think of me or do not say of me because of my irrelevance isn't going to affect my morning time in the word, hearing from God and responding to God. And I think for identity's sake, for all men, some of the things you're hitting at are so crucial because, I mean, for all of us, work gives us purpose. Work is a good thing given, given to us by God. It gives us purpose, reason to wake up in the morning. But for everyone, it's that struggle of, of what we're doing becoming our identity. Right. And so. Yeah. And, and, and we should also just be clear about something, which is that if somebody that you don't know personally can change your day because they trolled you on the Internet, that means that you are weak. Hmm. That's yeah. a weakness of your character and perhaps even your integrity. Um, and and that that that's not something immutable, right? Like you can grow and, mm -hmm. and you can probably grow pretty quickly. And I say that as somebody whose days are uh, regularly ru ruined by people I don't know on the internet. So <laughs> I am a weak, I'm a, I'm a weak man. But, uh, uh, but, it's some, but, but the point of saying that something is a weakness isn't to judge anybody. It's because we should have in our line of sight the ideals that we're all striving for. And so when somebody, uh, you know, when, when we are affected or when our spirit is moved by someone else's malice or someone else's negligence or carelessness, uh, we need to recognize, hmm, that's, that's, that's not good. I need to be working on that. I need to figure out what it is about my relationship with the internet that my day, I, I, I have this open door with the internet where anybody can walk into that door at any time and ruin my day. Hmm. Why, why would I do that? You yeah. know, that's it's uh, and 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 I think that that's something that, especially, okay. Do people on the left need to do that? Do do they need to make those corrections? Of course they do. I I don't think they have the spiritual or philosophical resources to justify getting off the internet. The and and that's why I think it's more well. That's why I think it is important for people on the right to hear it because, uh, being triggered. Well, at a, at a, when we're talking about trauma being triggered, can, we can talk about that as a technical term, and that's a real thing. People with combat PTSD, people with abuse PTSD, right? But being triggered in really the new sense of the term, which is that, uh, you know, other people thinking things that, that are different than me dis fundamentally disturbs my the stillness of my spirit. It makes it more difficult for me to relate to God. It may, it, 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 you know, it makes me feel more, uh, uh, you know, detached from, from my grounding in God. Um, you know, that's that we have the resources and the reasons, uh, to, to work against that. And, uh, we, on the right, you know, on the political right, and even just on the theological right, just as, as Christian conservatives, we need to be holding ourselves to a higher standard than the left. We that's just good. do. And it makes that's it good. hard for us. It makes the game harder for us, but it makes us better makes yeah. it better yeah you, you know two months ago i think now i completely abandoned twitter so i got rid of my personal twitter account good for you four or five months ago and then i got rid of the shepherd's crook account uh just because i got so exhausted i just got mm. tired of seeing uh things on there that just so frustrated me and for some of the same reasons that you're you're talking about it was just like forget it man i'm done and to be honest it's been great i mean yeah. i haven't missed it one bit it's been fantastic and it's been freeing and uh you really do i can tell a huge difference between just frustration levels i'm generally a happy person just mm -hmm. god has, has blessed me with a genetic makeup where i'm just a naturally happy person and, and 
a lot of that means I just kind of skip in life and don't recognize things going on around me. But the one area that could bring a lot of frustration to my day was Twitter, specifically Twitter. And so mm. I just washed my hands with it and said, peace out. And it's been awesome. Good um, for you. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, okay. So man, there's so many other things that I would like to, to ask you about manhood specifically. I wanted to ask you questions about Apollos, but for the sake of time. Oh yeah. Oh, oh, are we talking about Hebrews? Okay. Well, hold on. Okay. Well, with Apollos, no, not Hebrews. Oh, okay. okay. We'll, we'll just go there and we'll just, uh, forget time and we'll just, uh, we'll just, we'll just go there. So <laughs> years ago, I, I uh, was really encouraging people in the area of not being, when you're being discipled, not being controlled by someone. And mm -hmm. also rec like recognizing at the end of first Corinthians 16, Paul doesn't command Apollos. Apollos didn't see Paul's word to him yeah. as authoritative. And right. so I would say, listen, if you're giving control of your life over to somebody, you're, you're going beyond the, you're, you're, you know, obey your leaders and submit to them to an extent, not right. to the point where they control your life. Like with Apollos, he said, no, Paul, it's not my will to do that. Mm -hmm. I heard you at one point, and I always use that as a, in kind of the flip side version that you use it. You used it as saying, Hey, look, now look at Apollos, the man. Okay. Mm -hmm. And his ability to stand up to Paul, I was looking at it as don't Lord authority over somebody. You, you recognized it yeah. as, as saying, look at Apollos's ability to stand up to Paul. And right. so that, that for me was really intriguing. And I've used that before. How can, and then, and you know, right in the passages is, is act like men right before that. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is okay with, with that example, um, you, I think you like Teddy Roosevelt. I've heard you talk about, uh, you know, the strenuous life and I, I love art of manliness, been a, a long-term Brett McKay fan and, and Teddy Roosevelt fan. And mm. they intentionally pursued the virtue of manliness. It was something they pursued. Yeah. It, was, it was something they trained themselves in. And then year by year would explore new ways to how can I, how can I intentionally become more of this, of, of how I was created and who I want to be as a man for pastors in particular. Now, again, you're not a pastor, but you've been around pastors a lot. Uh, as men, why is it good for men to stretch themselves and to grow and to challenge themselves and to get into actually get into shape this next year and do things mm -hmm. that they've not done in the past? Why is that important? Yeah, well, it's important for two reasons. So one reason is uh, a reason that actually also applies to women. And one is one that's unique to men. Okay. And, and the, I'll, I'll start with the general one and then I'll go to the more specific one. So the general reason is because we should always be pursuing excellence uh, because we represent Christ and because God has deigned to give us new life and we are responsible to make the most of that new life. Uh, not only that, that we being in the image of God has to do with our bodies. So it's not arbitrary. God didn't spin a wheel and say, I wonder what their bodies are going to look like, mm -hmm. right? Part of what it means to be in the image of God is to be embodied. And so part of what it means to represent Christ responsibly and to responsibly respond to what God has given to us in Christ is to take care of our bodies. And uh, a third reason, this could just sort of, sort of a common sense reason, is that the, the more healthy you are, the more time you have on this life and the higher your quality of life. The better shape you're in, uh, the better food you're eating, the clearer your thoughts going to be, the better chance you have to be around and see your grandkids and see your great grandkids. And I, 
think life is a gift. The life is a totally dependent on receiving the continuity of the breath of God that God gave Adam in the garden. And it's a blessing. And we should seek to maximize that blessing. And so when Paul says, uh, 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 act like men, what, what he's doing there is he's drawing on basically what Jordan Peterson draws on when he t- talks about the, the Pareto principle, which is that, you know, can, um, is it possible for really strong women to maybe beat up some guys who are kind of strong? Yeah, it is. But if you look at the world's 100 strongest people, they're 100% going to be men. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about being strong, that's a masculine quality. Now, yeah. is, that a, is that a quality? that women ought to put on. So for example, does that verse apply to women? I think it does. I think the metaphor, I think it applies to men specifically, and I'm gonna talk about that in a second, but you can apply that verse to men. That, that, that verse has, has actual spiritual practical import for women, which is that uh, uh, strength is uh, uh, a venerable uh, masculine quality that, that everybody should seek to put on, not mm. just physical strength, but mental strength. And we should all pursue it because the more resilient we are, the more quickly we'll pass through our adversities, the, the longer we will endure through those adversities, the higher chance it is that our, we won't turn psychologically sour through those adversities. And life, many times, can simply be reduced to seasons of suffering. And if we can't endure through those seasons of suffering, whether those be physical or mental or circumstantial, then uh, uh, we're going to have a really difficult time uh, relying on God, representing God well, and just making it through life. So that's a common sense reason why masculinity is uh, a really um, typically masculine qualities are things everybody ought to pursue because Paul, uh, uh, it, it, Paul commends that pursuit hmm. to us. Um, now, the specifically male reason why, or, or, or rather the, the reason that men specifically should seek to be men or, or the really like the, the constrained application of Paul's passage, which really probably is more the spirit of what he's saying. He probably is speaking to men, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and so uh, it's, it's that we have more responsibility. Men, ha- men uh, do, again, do some women have more responsibility than some men? Or, or sorry, do some women have more responsibility than some men? Obviously, but <laughs> yeah. men should be seeking to take responsibility. And really the fact is that responsibility isn't even so much about how much you're on the hook for in your life right now. It's really about what God's going to hold us responsible for. Mm. And God is going to hold us responsible for protecting our families physically, which makes um, training weights and training martial arts uh, something close to a theological mandate. Uh, I haven't really thought about that too much or teased that out, but I, I think there's something really substantive there. Hmm. Um, and more than that, this goes to the theology of work as well. Like we were just talking about earlier, work, work is a very good thing. Not only is work a very good thing, it's admirable for men in particular uh, uh, because they, they ultimately, when God is dealing with families, he's dealing, he's dealing with real people. Uh, but you, you see this analogy in his church. So when God, so in Ephesians 4, Paul is talking about um, so 1 Corinthians is all dominated by this, the talking about spiritual gifts as uh, functions or operations, right? Okay. Tongues, prophecy, and teaching and stuff like that. Whereas Paul, it, as he is maturing in his theology, and he says, you know, that, that, that um, he's, ta- I, I forget the exact wording of the passage, but he essentially says that the people are the gifts. 
the people are the gifts. So when we look at, um, so when we look at prophets and apostles and teachers, mm -hmm. uh, Paul is talking about the people, but mm. there's a reason that he doesn't just name people, right? There's a reason he doesn't just say people. Mm -hmm. He says offices. So when God relates to the church, he relates to the church as uh, individuals, as people created in the image of God, but he relates to everybody also along the axis of their formal place within the church hmm. and their relationship to the offices of the church one way or the other. And likewise, he relates to families in the same way. So in the same way that God is going to judge more harshly or Uh, safeguard the well-being of their local flock. Likewise, God safeguards, or God God charges every man to safeguard the well-being of his family, and with that uh, uh, um, comes loads of responsibility—not right. just physically, but financially, emotionally. You're really called to shepherd your family and shepherd your wife, and and that require. That's why you know, like it, this is all cliche stuff, right? But it's just like being the bigger man. You know, when you're married and you're a man. You have to have the mental fortitude, not just physical strength, but the mental strength to be the leader of the conversation. You know, are you ever in a conversation with somebody and they're just like, somebody has to step up and, right. and, and make the conversation progress? Well, you know, you have a lot of those human kinds of interactions in marriage and in family. And ultimately, it's up to us to be the leaders, to cast the vision, to set the tone. And if something's going wrong, we take that posture, like Jocko says, in extreme ownership. It's on me. It's on me. Yeah. I'm just going to keep, I'm going to keep taking responsibility for everything that has to do with my family. Not only because if I don't, then I'm sowing seeds of resentment and I am making myself more fragile by the moment. If I refuse to take responsibility for everything as a fundamental disposition, mm -hmm. but I'm actually not fulfilling the office that I asked for right. when I said my wedding. Vows. I'm actually, evacuating the, 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 the very uh, seat that I asked to hold. And so that's, that's why men should be men because yeah. God will hold us responsible for being men. And if we're not, that's going to be a problem. Yeah. Now, obviously that doesn't compromise our salvation. I mean, we can't make any strong correlations. So theologically speaking, but obviously we see this all throughout scripture is that, our actions in this life are coming up again. Hmm. Uh, and, and for men in particular, how we wield that power and whether we respond appropriately to the office that God gives to us is going to be a topic that we discuss in the future after we die. It's hmm. just a fact. <laughs> and we have to be prepared for that conversation. We have to live in light of that future conversation that's coming. It's, yeah. it's coming. So... Yeah. Fantastic. All right. So I told you before the interview started, before we hit record, that I was going to pepper you with some random questions as well. Right. So I, I want to get into that. Uh, this has been fantastic. But I, I uh, when I think about this guy, your name is, is closely associated with him because there's mm -hmm. very few people in our day to day that can in a succinct, lucid, clear way with a backbone and without having to say 50 million qualifications, just say the truth and apply a commitment to biblical inerrancy and also uh, just simply not being embarrassed by biblical inerrancy or yeah. the authority of the word, just simply not being embarrassed in the conclusion so sad when of people not are being embarrassed by the Bible 
mm. than working themselves out in all of life. And you're a guy that I really just appreciate. You're able to say some things and okay, whatever, whoever doesn't like it, but Doug Wilson, I love Doug Wilson. <laughs> I, I really I love do. Doug Wilson. Yes. I, I want to know from your perspective, why do people hate Doug Wilson so much? Why do people hate Doug Wilson? Yeah. Why because do people hate Doug Wilson? Because they're weak. Okay. <laughs> they're weak people. If you hate Doug Wilson and you've never met Doug Wilson, you're a weak person. It's just a fact. Like you don't know what you're talking about. You know, like like you know, to to be consumed with hatred, to be to be even bothered by somebody uh, uh, just because of what they're saying, just because of what they believe. I, I think the right has the exact uh, again the political right has the exact right pers- perspective on this, which is that when when so. Let's let's say, for example, that you're on the left and you believe that Doug Wilson is an evil and stupid person. Well, I don't think that. I think I'm so I thank God for Doug Wilson. I mean, he's like holding things together for all of us right now. Uh, (laughs) So so I love it. So I'm a a huge Doug Wilson fan. Um, But but if 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 you're on the left and you think that Doug Wilson is an evil and stupid and ignorant person. I would my philosophy would be let him talk. If he's if he's really yeah. saying something that stupid, just let him keep talking. And that's what I, I see that people on 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 the right actually do take this approach with people on the left. It's just like every time somebody on the left starts talking and going down this intersectionality road, you know, I'm just like, keep talking. Please keep talking. Because this is just more gas gasoline for the fire, man. Mm. You know, this is great. And so, and that's the beautiful thing about being a Christian is that, and, and that's something that the left, it's, it's, the, it's a benefit the left will never enjoy. And it's yeah. that the, the ideas I'm defending and the things that I'm unapologetic about, I didn't invent. Mm-hmm. God, I'm, in, my, in my view, these are things that God has said. Uh, these are things that God has, has, has um, uh, God, God has seen these things, these issues to be so important that he has erupted into history itself to mm-hmm. tell them to us. And uh, uh, as somebody who owes allegiance to my Lord, it is my obligation to speak prophetically into our cult- cultural moment if I'm able and if I have an audience. Uh, and I wouldn't say that's a, a criteria that, or a criterion that every man should hold himself to. But personally, I, I feel convicted to do it. So that's why I do it. And I can see somebody like Doug Wilson. You know, you ever see that movie? I mean, everybody's seen The Patriot, right? With Mel right. Gibson and, and that last scene where he's just flying. the. You know, all the Americans are retreating, the American soldiers, and he starts flying the flag yeah. you know and and then they all see him and he starts and they start running back and then and then the british you know start retreating that's kind of what doug wilson is to me he's somebody he's mm. he's flying the flag high he's not compromising on his values he's articulating things with eloquence and excellence and real uh, uh, uh winsomeness and wit and he's just doing in my view uh, he's just doing everything right just yeah from, uh, from a theological perspective well so sorry like I'm sure we, Doug Wilson and I have a, some the, theological disagreements and stuff like that, but but um, just from a from a cultural apologetic perspective, from a, um, even just from a marketing perspective, they're, mm-hmm. what they're doing is so great, and uh, I hope that the left continues to hate Doug Wilson because it only reinforces our our, our need for his ministry. I, I, yeah. I think. But why why do they hate them? Because they have no way of saying no to themselves. Mm. And that is a, it's a really tragic weakness that I, I, I pray that they're able to overcome. Yeah. Through Christ. <laughs> yeah. My, my co-pastor, life. my co-pastor had me read 
the greatest fight in the world, which was Spurgeon's last address to his students. Mm. And in that three-part address, in the last section, he talks about his commitment to biblical inerrancy in light of German scholarship, in light of everything that was going on in Great Britain, and the downgrade controversy. And he said in, in that little book, as he's addressing, I will be even more vile um, he talks about how he will basically give more fuel to the fire to people if he will call more attention to the issues. Hmm. And my Andy said, man, this is exactly, you know, what's what he's doing. He's calling the issue that the issue is people don't want to hear from God. They don't care what God hmm. has to say. And we have a book and the issue is God has spoken and we don't have the liberty to be ashamed or embarrassed by it. No. And uh, and so we'll even be more vile if we have to call attention to here's what God God has spoken you know God has spoken right. here, mm-hmm. and uh, and so man it's th- this has been this has been a lot of fun. Uh, do you okay? So um, I want to give you a, an opportunity here just to, at a personal level to speak to just the grace of Jesus. I think a lot of my listeners are going to just enjoy some of them. Most of them are going to be familiar with you from from Doctrine and Devo or wherever they've heard or heard or listened to you or read, read you in the past from desiring God or, or wherever. But uh, on a personal note, Paul Maxwell, why do you love Jesus? Why, wow, why that's a good question. Him? That's a really good question. So there are multiple answers, multiple correct answers to that question. Uh, I, I love him because he called me and, I, and as his sheep, I, I know my shepherd's voice. And um, he gave me the gift of faith through his spirit. So that's fundamentally why I love him, because he gave me the gift of loving him. And that's a Amen. really beautiful thing. And I'm uh, so overjoyed to be sustained by his grace. And, and there are, I've gone through seasons of my life where I have not loved Christ, hmm. uh, even after I became a Christian. But I, I believe that God was watching over me during that time and, hmm. and was with me in the wilderness and through the valley. And he's very, very, very faithful. Um, I also love Christ because he gives meaning to my life and without Christ, I would be terrified, terrified death. Um, uh, I would be haunted by my own insignificance. Um, I would be crushed. I was just reading, uh, Simone de Beauvoir's her, her book, the ethics of ambiguity. And, and it's just such a tragic book to read because she's just crushed by her insignificance and Mm. she's trying to drag everybody into that with her. And it's so sad. And I, I read this. I'm so sympathetic with this because without God, I mean, there's it's simply nothingness and you know that was yeah. you know Sergeant Jean Paul Sartre you know was obviously writing alongside Simone de Beauvoir right in, in his book being in nothingness that's that's his whole point is that being is just being isn't there being uh we start with nothingness and then whatever is is whatever we make of mm-hmm. life and that's not the world we live in and I'm so thankful that God um really went out of his way <laughs> to um to show me that that's not the world that I live in because I have no idea what kind of dark psychological reality I would be living in 
mm-hmm. if I didn't know Christ. And I've, I've had I've had tastes of that in seasons of disobedience that have been very, very, very desperate. And um, maybe you know that's uh, who, who, I forget who said this, but sin, sin is its own punishment. Paul said something like it in Romans one, mm-hmm. but uh, but but sin certainly is its own punishment, and God certainly uses sin to discipline His people. And I've had I, I've had Him do that in in my own life, and it works. Um, mm-hmm. For some people, maybe it doesn't work, but for me, I'm really thankful that Christ just never gives up on me. Yeah. Never gives up. Never lets me go. Um, no matter how far I go, no matter how much I try, um, I'm always going to be held by the grace of God forever, forever, and. Um, it, it it really words words escape me to sufficiently express mm. the the extravagance of that gift. Awesome. Yeah, good that's stuff, a good question. Man. Yeah. Well, I appreciate your time today. This has been a lot of fun, and uh, just thanks so much for coming up and coming on the show, man. Thanks so much for having me. This was yeah. so much fun. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit theshepherdscrook.co. For care and counsel, please call, text, or email to set up a session. You can follow The Shepherd's Crook on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And please consider sharing this episode and leaving a review on iTunes or whatever other podcast platform you use. And let me encourage you to remember Jesus Christ.